Get down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. Get down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. Get down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. Who's down with D&D? Yeah, you know Get down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. Get down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. I'm down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. Who's down with D&D? Are you ready to get down with some D&D? I know why, and I am joined, as I am always joined, by the memorable, marvelous, and merry Mad Wizard Merwin. What is up, Sean? I am extra merry today, Chris, because we have a special guest with us. A special guest? Who might that be? It is the devout and the very dedicated... And divine. DM David. Don't forget divine. Divine. divine uh, DM David. David Hartledge. Hey, thanks for coming on the show, Dave. Thank you. It's my pleasure. I mean, you got to get three Ds in there if you're going to do the thing, Sean. Like, I know. This, this you is know, how I, it goes. I had three in mind, and then when I started, I just forgot all of them. <laughs> David, how are you doing? I'm doing very well. It's a treat to be on this show with uh, you two. Uh, we're more than more than pleased to have you here with us, especially since we've uh, you know done probably a half dozen shows based on your articles. So you know, thank you. <laughs> Happy to help. Um. In a little bit, we're going to talk about encouraging role-playing because you wrote an article about um, getting to the whole role-playing thing. But before that, we do announcements. So let's get into the announcements, Sean. What's uh, what's first? The first uh, is that Wizards of the Coast is hiring a global bland, bland, that's probably not good, a global brand marketing manager for D&D. So thank you, Michael Beninsky, our watcher of the D&D news for pointing this out to us. Uh, I think this is good news. It shows that the brand is growing still and that they are bringing on professional help to uh, enhance that. So uh, a small bit of information that I saw from the um, kind of the help wanted post was you will craft product plans and experiential marketing campaigns that bring people together through their shared love of games. You'll use your create creativity and background in games or entertainment marketing to inspire fans to play more Dungeons and Dragons. Does that not sound like the greatest job ever? It sounds like a stressful job, actually. Yeah. Well, you know, if if I had that job, here's what I would do. I would take my entire budget, no matter what it was, and I would just pay celebrities to play D&D and film it and then just put it out everywhere I could. Because yeah. that seems to be what the plan has been so far, and it's working pretty well. Yeah. Uh, David, do you have any other uh, ways that you would spend all that money to do stuff? Well, it's interesting from that description that they're really working hard to turn the marketing effort into a game in itself, it sounds like. So I think we're seeing a little bit with the introduction of the next storyline. This yeah, is true. Right? I mean, we'll, we'll talk about that in a second, right? I think that's our next point. Yeah. Uh, I, I don't have anything else to add to that, Sean. I would do exactly what you said, because that seems to work really effectively. And as as David so aptly segued into the next announcement, which is the stream of many eyes will introduce the next season of D&D on June 1st. June 1st. Wow. Sean, are you okay today? Yeah, I don't know what it is today. My, uh, <laughs> my lips aren't working so well. So uh, we recorded the last session, and I swear it was three minutes later, I refreshed my browser and they had announced that they were going to do this stream of many eyes. It always happens to us. Every it time. It always happens. So on June 1st through 3rd, D&D will bring tons of Twitch streamers, actors, comedians, and D&D luminaries to the stream of many eyes, a three-day live-streamed extravaganza full of cosplay, crazy sets, and amazing stories. During the stream of many eyes... The D&D team will unveil the new adventure story coming this year and showcase extraordinary D&D live play entertainment in a huge studio in Los Angeles. So taking their marketing budget and pouring it into getting celebrities playing D&D. Hmm. It's a good idea. I mean, it's, it's a great idea. So yep. did we talk about the Twitter handle that popped up last week? No. So you know about the Twitter handle, right? I do. Okay. So it's called something, the, the some sort of fortress, or I can't remember exactly what the Twitter handle is. Oh, I don't remember exactly either. D- DM David, did you see it? I didn't see it, but I can't remember exactly what the handle was. It's it's some sort of like I can't remember. Like I said, I can't remember exactly. It's something about some uh, about like an impenetrable fortress or something like that. So like we now have a bunch of clues out there about what the next season is. Uh, I mean, the stream of many eyes, this this fortress Twitter handle that has popped up. Unfortunately, I'm not allowed to speculate because I know exactly what it is. So that sucks. Mm-hmm. <laughs> 
And so does Sean. Um, DM David, do you know what the next storyline is? A rumor has it it's something set in um, Waterdeep, perhaps involving the uh, Undermountain and possibly a clash of uh, street gangs or organizations within the city. So it sounds like a good way to combine an urban adventure and and uh, you know with with occasional dungeon crawling. Yep. See, someone I'm so uh, happy wizards. Oh, go ahead, Chris. I was going to say, I'm so happy that we have somebody here who doesn't actually know what it is so they can speculate because we're not allowed to speculate anymore, Sean. <laughs> well, I mean, some of the clues that have been coming out, people have been putting together. Uh, one of the things that they said, they being wizards, a representative of wizards, was that this season would combine um, gangs of New York with, uh, what was the Dan Brown book? Uh, da Vinci Code. Mm, it would be a cross between those two. Um, and then there were some clues, a Morse code clue that was seen in Eye of the Beholder, the old video game, which dealt with Xanathar. So you connect Xanathar um, you know, with, with the stream of many eyes. So you get that sort of uh, Xanathar feel. And, of course, the book has already, uh, Xanathar's book has already been out. So that would be another tie-in. So it's all interesting. It's all starting to come together. I don't, I don't say anything anymore because anything I could say would just get us in trouble like we did yeah. that one time. So, you know. Yeah. By the way, I I if, did you hear me for that? Did you hear about that, David, the one time that we, we sort of like talked about Ravenloft when we weren't supposed to? I did not hear about that. Did you get some sort of nasty gram from Wizards lawyers? Uh, no, no. It, it, it really wasn't all that big a deal. What happened was Chris was speculating because Chris Perkins had put some major clues down about Ravenloft at uh, at Gamehallcon. Yep. Think. Yeah, he did. And so he 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 put out all these all this clues toward Ravenloft, and then Chris said, "Well, you know, that's that would point toward Ravenloft." And I said, "Well, you know, that would make sense based on those clues." And so just that innocent that would make sense ended up on the front of Yen World saying. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and of course, I did know because I was writing some stuff for it for the Adventures League at the time. But I didn't. But I didn't. I didn't say yes. That's it. I just said, well, that would make sense it, based on all the information we're getting. Um, so it wasn't that big a deal in the long run. It just kind of happened that way. It just makes me sad because I'm not allowed to speculate anymore because I know what's going on these days. Yeah. I should really yeah. just like learn to not know what's going on so I can speculate. But I was get. I don't want to get Sean in trouble either. So you know, there's that. Well, too. Chris, in another ten years or so, you'll be like me and you just won't remember anything that, anyway. That's true. Oh, what's yeah. the last thing we're talking about? We're going to talk about a neat article from the Seattle Times called "Behind the Scenes of the Making of D and D," and it was a very interesting article where someone from the Times went into Watsi and was just going through talking with people, looking at what they were doing at the time. But the most interesting part to me were these little bits of information regarding the game and the hobby um, that were, were gleaned from this article, such as a 2017 survey that Wizards did found that nearly 40% of D&D players are now women, which I thought was great. Hopefully will be higher soon. Uh, but, um, you know, that's definitely a shift from even five years ago. Uh, another was that 2017 was, quote, the biggest, unquote, in D&D's 44-year history. Um, while they didn't give exact sales numbers, the brand team said that uh, there was a 44% sales growth between 2016 and 2017, which is unbelievable, and that the most number of players in history is playing, that would be from 12 million to 15 million in North America alone. So, you know, those numbers are great to have for people working in the industry or just fans of the game. Uh, of those who started since 2014, more than 50% started playing by watching games online. And another thing that was interesting, not in terms of the game D&D its itself, but in terms of what's coming, is that on the day that this reporter went in, the Wizards team was playtesting a new D&D board game that would be released through Avalon Hill in the fall. It's aimed at young players and families who are new to D&D and, you know, trying to learn. And one of the testers at that time was a running back from the Seattle Seahawks named C.J. Prosis, who was doing an internship at Wizards of the Coast. So, you know, there's another connection to trying to expand the game by getting into a different uh, area where you could pick up new fans. 
And the last thing that I thought was interesting was Jeremy Crawford talked about going to conventions and actually running games for players. And this is something that people like Teos, uh, Abadia, and I have been talking about forever, is the need for the people who make the game to actually go out and play with with players away from their home games and away from their little uh, insular setting there in Renton, um, Washington. So check. we have a link in the show notes to the article. Check it out. Read it over. See what you think. I think the most fascinating number about this is the uh, the twelve to fifteen million people in North America playing the game, and yeah. that that's that's a cool number. Like, I wasn't sure it was that high, and knowing it's that high and it's getting bigger all the time is very encouraging. And how many people are playing outside of North America? You know, that's that's I believe growing as well from what I've heard. So mm-hmm. that's you know just good numbers to hear for fans of the game. David, did you have any thoughts about that? Yeah, I think for the first time we're starting to see D&D having a way to spread other than sort of a table-to-table with personal relationships. And uh, that's really unlocked a lot of growth from sort of a mysterious hobby that, you know, people have heard of but really aren't clear about what it is and and really uncovered it to, to show people how fun it is even... Even folks who don't have a personal relationship with somebody who already plays. We do love streaming around here for that that purpose. I mean, that's it's kind of an amazing thing that it's now making the game so much more accessible for folks. Mm-hmm. All right, let's get into our main topic. So getting people to role play. So we've asked DM David to join us because of his uh, cognizant... Er, cogent analysis of the game in general and because of one article he wrote in particular it was called most advice for encouraging role-playing stinks but i found the good stuff by the way you can tell sean wrote that because he wrote cogent and i don't think i've ever written the word cogent in my entire life in anything good job sean hey anytime man (laughs) so i think um so first off and i didn't do this before because i assume everybody knows who dm david is cuz i've talked about him and Sean's talked about him on the show a bunch of times but david would you tell people who you are <laughs> yeah i started uh role playing or dnd back with the blue box somewhere around 1977 78 and i think we all have a story about first seeing uh or hearing about dnd and um uh, somewhere in the background music of our lives, that's the swell of strings and a crescendo mm-hmm. as we have this electrifying epiphany of something that we've we've been missing all our lives, um, and and that that kind of happened for me in in junior high way back in in '77, I think it was. Back then, um, you know, I had a a notebook that said, I love science fiction on it. Mm-hmm. I liked fantasy, but there wasn't much of it that was visible out in the in the ordinary world. Um, the popular opinion at the time was that fantasy was for children and for adults who kind of failed to leave childish things behind. I liked games, um, but I hadn't really seen anything like this before. You know, one of my favorite games at the time was, was something called Prize Property, where uh, I think this was Milton Bradley's knockoff of Monopoly, where you'd, you'd build properties and sue other players to try and stop them from building their properties. And somebody thought that this was the most fun, evocative thing that uh, that you could have in a game at the time. So when I heard folks in uh, my junior high school cafeteria talking about a game where you could go into dungeons, fight, monsters and and then gain experience and get better at fighting monsters as you went on it was it was just electrifying and especially that mention of of gaining experience because it suggested a game that was way beyond the scope of just some little board that you unboxed in your in your basement um and uh since then i've uh, i've been playing and thinking about the game and and sometime around 2012 I decided I had a lot of things to say, and, and I decided to try and write them down and and put them out there. So I've been grateful that uh, that's caught on to some extent. Uh, more than some extent. like you, uh, A lot of people hold your blog in quite high regard, including me and Sean, so there you go. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, thank you for that that insight into where uh, where you got your start and, and the blog that you put out there, which is um, what, where's the blog address? It's dmdavid.com. That's right. There you go. All right. So, like I said, we're going to talk about getting people to role play, but uh, as we like to do around misdirected mark in general, uh, we like to define things. So, Sean, would you define role play? Well, after I read uh, DM David's article, the first thing I thought was, wow, this is really good again. And the second thing I thought was, if I scroll down right now, I'm going to hear people saying, you're trying to tell me how to have fun. You're trying to tell me that I need to act in character and wear costumes and do all of this or, or I'm playing wrong. Which, of course, is as far from the actual gist of the article as you can get. But that's how people react on the Internet. So I think before we even start this discussion, it's important to separate what we mean by role playing from the the act of theatrics, you know, from acting out your character, dressing up and, and doing that. I think dressing up in costume and speaking with an accent for your character, reciting your clan's 5,000 word battle cry from memory. It, it's a type of role playing, but it's not necessarily the only definition or the main definition. Um, so for me... What this article was talking about, and you can you know correct me if I'm wrong, David, is that what we're really trying to do is encourage uh, the kind of play where the player helps deepen the story by interacting with the game through the character rather than through just the rules or, or other aspects of the game. Does that sound like a good definition? Yeah, that seems spot on because uh, okay. you're right. A lot of folks are not particularly uncomfortable comfortable speaking in a voice, um, though I certainly encourage everybody to speak first person when they're talking in character. But I think that if you can think about what your character wants and kind of express how your character would behave in, in game situations, rather than just looking for, you know, the optimal um, feet to use or whatever, um, I think that really enriches the game for not only you, but the other folks at the table. Chris, did you want to add anything to that definition? I do, and it's sort of adding, but really it's in the same same vein of, as what you're saying, Sean. Um, I think what we're getting at here is is storytelling, and we're talking about engaging, as as DM David said, with more than just the mechanics and creating this this collaborative storytelling experience where the players are bringing more narrative contributions to play, and that's that's really the thing, like. As David said, he's he's talking about trying to get people to talk a little bit more um, from from first person point of view. But as will as 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 I my opinion will be uh, more apparent later. It's not necessary necessary to just express from the first person point of view. It's more just necessary to help contribute to the story as a player, which D and D has some um, conventions in it that make that a little bit trickier in some ways. Mm -hmm. And and one other point I wanted to make uh, from the article is that. Uh, David, you, you come right out and say, if someone is really uncomfortable with the spotlight and they really don't want to engage the, the game and the story at this level, don't make them because all it does is, is you know, make them unhappy. Absolutely. It's, it's you know, the, the play acting is not for everybody. I think a lot of folks enjoy it, myself included. But some people just don't feel comfortable taking that role or they they don't particularly enjoy it. It doesn't, you know, it's not the interesting part of the game for them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And what I like about your, your points after that was there are ways that they can engage in role playing, um, that, that they can be led through or kind of enticed to do without that full on spotlight on them, having to come up with creative things off the top of their head. Um, just simple ways to, to draw some role-playing out of them and that they might actually enjoy and might uh, grow from both as a player and as a storyteller. Right. I love making players, finding ways to make players think about who their character is and, um, and, and what, what, what makes their character from a, from a background point of view. Um, mm -hmm. So that's, that's one of the tips that I talked about, and I don't know if we want to dive into that yet. Oh yeah, we should well, we, totally dive yeah. into that. Let's go. Yeah. Let's go there. Right. Um, I, I think I think in real life we're all used to small talk, but um, in the in the game we kind of stick with business, with the goals that are that are at hand and and how we're trying to achieve them. 
I think a great way to encourage players to role playing role play as a DM is to when you're acting as an NPC, um, ask some of the characters from time to time personal questions, make small talk with the characters, and try and encourage them to think about aspects of their character that are not on their character sheet. So you might ask uh, somebody, why did you become an adventurer? Or what's your, why did you choose to become a paladin? Or, or what's, uh, what's your reason for caring so much about this village that you're defending? And so on. And for a lot of players, this, this would be the first time they've thought about those kind of questions as far as their character goes. And... Uh, you know, I think it, it helps them develop the characters in ways that they wouldn't naturally come to do. Mm -hmm. It's funny that you mentioned that. I wrote an adventure many, many years ago. I don't even know what edition it was for. Where the characters to get through this one portal have to answer a question truthfully. And so one of the questions that they could have been asked was, what's your mother's name? And it was funny because some of them, you know, they pulled out their sheet of... 12 pages of backstory of their character and they actually had it written down and mm -hmm. could have told me, you know, how tall she was and what her job was. And, and But some of the players, of course, had never even thought that their character, does my character even have a mother? I don't know. So j just the hesitation there. And some of them just said, like, Jane. And I'm like, okay, that's fine. That's the truth. You're Now, with your character's background, you know that your mother's name is Jane. Uh, but it was it was funny to, to see them kind of cogitate on that for a while, either in sheer panic or the opportunity to actually create something on the spot, um, what seemed to be fun for them. I really liked when you said um, small talk, because you're right, we don't always engage in small talks. We often think it's kind of a, um, a waste of time, maybe, but it's not really. Like That's part of the, the play of the game. These characters are the game in a lot of ways. So uh, to, to kind of tack on to that, like other questions you could ask is like, so what do people normally talk about when they, when they meet for the first time? Like, where are you from? Like, and that can spark a whole conversation. Like, Oh, what's it like there? Oh, what ha or, or like if, if something happened there, you, you can actually go into it. Like, Oh, I heard this thing happened there. And then you like, that can spark like even a good way to like recap what has happened in the past and whatnot. And then you can move on to those personal questions too. Uh, what else did you want to talk about concerning the uh, article, David? Well, also in that that region of encouraging uh, players to um, develop their characters, another thing that I like to do is, and this is a this is a long time technique, is to encourage players to create ties with the other characters on the table. So I think the best way to start with this is to ask everyone at the table to find someone else at the table and invent a reason that their character has strong, positive ties to that other character. Are they family members? Did they go to the same, you know, wizarding school? Did they come from the same village? Whatever it is. And then invent a tie that both characters can agree on that creates a positive link between the characters. And this has two advantages. It makes people think about why they've joined up with these unlikely heroes and are adventuring together. But it also, um, I've, I've lost it. Um, <laughs> it's okay. It's okay. <laughs> the good news is we can edit. Yes, okay. we can totally edit. We do edit, in fact, a lot. Um, so if you don't mind me uh, tacking on to that, the whole ties, yeah. creating ties between characters, one of my favorite techniques for this um, was I would s be at the table with people. It would be like session one or a one-shot. I'd be like, all right, look to the person to your right. Tell me and that person how you met. Like, where did you meet this person? And then after they've done that, I say to the person, the the other person, I'm like, look to the person to your right. So back to the person that they met. How did that person um, pull you out of a terrible situation because then that creates a bond between those characters like we, we know how they met but then we know how they saved them so then we have instant um, ties in in uh, in in a meaningful way and there's a billion ways that you can do that 
that those aren't the only questions you can ask, but those are those, that's a really good, quick and dirty way to to handle that situation. Right. One one technique that was mentioned in in a comment to my post was sort of something that I would kind of call a clouded mirror technique, where everyone at the table figures out how they met or remembers how they met somebody else at the table and then invents a bond that is sort of a fantasy version of that that meeting. Mm. So if they happen to be related, if they're brothers, then in the fantasy world, maybe they're related in some way. Um, it's a good launching point if people are stuck for ideas. Uh, another thing you can do is if you want to go and steal a bunch of stuff out there, listeners, uh, go to Dungeon World, pick up the playbooks. I think they're free out there. And look at the bonds because there's these questions that usually have some sort of like they're like a Mad Lib that you add in a character's name. So it creates a bunch of interesting yep. connections between characters. So uh, there's a there's a ton of ways to do that out there in the world already. It's just you have to you might have to just go look a little bit. That's all. And And you can also do it differently for. If you're running a longer campaign versus a short campaign versus maybe a one shot at a convention or or a living campaign adventure in public, um, you can go a little deeper in a campaign and you can you know start with with light bonds but then work them together as you go. Whereas if you're running a one shot, you might not have a lot of time, so you want to keep it simple, like Chris said, with just look to your right, answer a question, look to your left, answer another question. Th- those are your bonds right there. Yeah, I think that the biggest advantage of creating these sorts of bonds is it gives players a reason to role play amongst each other. So role playing doesn't become a one-on-one interaction between the DM and one particular player. It, it it can broaden the scope of it so that everyone in the party has a reason to talk and role play with other folks in the party. Mm-hmm. So I liked uh, another thing about this article where you talk about portraying npcs as you want the players to portray their characters because you're basically saying as the dungeon master you should demonstrate the kind of play that you were hoping that the players will give you back yes absolutely i think as a dungeon master when it makes sense when the scene deserves that level of attention uh, that it's important to try and portray the characters as themselves in, in whatever level of acting you're comfortable with. And for some folks, maybe that means you do the voices and the accents and so on. But even if you just invent a, a posture or a body language or some sort of physical portrayal for those folks, whether you're you know standing up straight and puffing out your chest for the battle master or you're kind of hunched over and you're playing the scribe. Um, I think that really makes the character memorable, so it sticks out as distinct in the players. But it also makes everybody comfortable and familiar with this notion of of playing a character rather than describing what that character is doing in the third person. Mm-hmm. And and another thing I think that's important is to um, when you're portraying those NPCs. If, if you have the time to make the characters kind of tease the information out of them, that is important because that introduces the the concept that, you know, the world is not going to bend to you. You have to go out and do some things to get the answers or the desired outcomes that you want as an adventurer. Um, and, and that, I think teaches uh, by example the fact that this role-playing isn't an extra thing. It's part of the whole. Yeah. I mean, oh, man, I'm such a big proponent of... Um, I want I want my narrative and my, my storytelling stuff to, to lead into mechanics that lead back into narrative stuff mm-hmm. like and storytelling. Like, I want my games to often do that. And um, I think D&D is just as, just as effective at doing that as a lot of other games. Um, the the combat section of D&D is, is, uh, can be a little harder to get that out of because it's not as necessary. But the skills usage stuff works exceptionally well in that. If you were asking, like, look, I know you want to make this diplomacy check, but like, what have you done in the fiction 
to make this diplomacy check. Like you haven't like given me any reason that you should be able to make this diplomacy check other than you have a high diplomacy. Mm -hmm. And you told me like, I'm going to diplomize with this person. I'm like, we have no idea what this looks like. So we have no idea what's, what, what are the possible outcomes? Mm -hmm. I mean, that is a, that is a thing that bothers me because as a players out there, as your dungeon master, if I'm your dungeon master, if you don't give me anything, I have, I have to work a lot harder to give you anything back. Mm -hmm. So the more that you can sort of give us as dungeon masters, the more we can actually give back to you. So it's, it's not like we're, we want to beat you over the head with a stick. We just want you to help us. Like it's supposed to be this, in my opinion, collaborative experience. Right. And if you're running like we do sometimes at, for Adventures League, if you're running the same adventure seven times, you don't want to tell the same story seven times as the no. DM. You want the players to help you tell a story that is completely different every time. And only with their input can that happen. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think when, when players, um, as, as you say, Chris, start talk, um, trying to fast forward through, through some of the interactions by, say, by saying things like, I want to roll diplomacy or I'm going to convince him to give us the, the gold or, or whatever it is, the idol. Um, I think the best way to kind of unpack that is to ask the player, um, how would your character, how would Derwin, how would um, Tara say that? Or how would they try and intimidate this person? Or how how do their feelings show in in their um in their how do they show their anger because they're they're upset about this or, or whatever it is and, and try and encourage them to unpack it and now now some folks are not going to be particularly um eager to to really play that out very much but i think it does encourage folks who are not used to speaking in first person through their character to do it and to think about how their character would would do these things and then once they finish their attempt to persuade or intimidate or whatever it is um, I like to wherever the situation merits it give them advantage or give them a bonus mm -hmm. or sometimes even just completely skip the check and you know if, if, if they're case is particularly convincing why bother rolling and then having the disappointment of somehow right a, a reaction that doesn't make sense yep yeah I, I like that when you your one point was ask the player how would your character say that if it's if it's a player who's really really uh, hesitant to speak too much you could even ask them how does your your character do that when you are sneaking somewhere you know have them actually stand up if they're moving across the room or if they're doing something that's not verbal have them stand up and act it out pantomime because maybe they're you know if they if they are maybe they're more comfortable uh doing that rather than speaking so that again gets them into the mindset that they are this character at this moment um even if they're not going to verbalize now if you don't mind me getting a little um a little meta for the for a moment because I I love everything that's being said here, but I I do have like a pretty big counterpoint to a lot of the the sort of stuff that we're talking about. And not a counterpoint; it's like an add on to it because we're talking mm -hmm. about speaking in character and and like kind of this first person point of view. And I think that um, in a lot of ways, just description from the players describing what's going on can help a ton too. Like you, Sean, you just talked about getting up and, and, and acting it out. Like I am just as, as comfortable and even more so with someone saying, when I say like, what does that look like? And they actually tell me what it looks like as if I was reading a book or what the camera angle looks like from a movie. Like, but that is, um, that's sort of like a slightly different kind of play. And it's not mm -hmm. something that we're necessarily used to with D and D. And the reason, uh, because there's a, there's a, there's a very kind of delineated player dungeon master, um, dynamic in D and D, like the DM is often the person that's in charge, not in charge, but they like they do a lot of the descriptive things, and it's often the players um, interacting with the mechanics to make things happen. And we're we're um, we're trying to actually talk about how we can get away from that a little bit, and uh, that leads to this idea that we have around this directive mark called uh, levels of play. So, like, if you think of a game 
as a bunch of levels. And you're kind of switching between these different levels. Like, you can be in character, but then you can be talking from the story, and then you can be playing from the game level. And you can kind of switch back and forth between them. And Randy Farmer, the old school DM, will be like, not this again. Um, because he thinks <laughs> it's all one thing, which is a fair assessment. I have no problem with that. But for the person that is not completely comfortable with these concepts, or that tends to get out of uh, a mode of play after, after being in one or another, like, these are things to think about and that they can be very useful. So, like, if you're playing on the character level, you are looking at things from the character's point of view and narrating in character or from a third-person point of view for the character. If you're in the story level, then you are playing or contributing at the story level. That means you're not necessarily advocating for your character, but for a compelling story in the story overall. You might even have ways to just contribute in a manner um, to the DM with, like, world-building or adding plot points or, you know, creating NPCs, things like that. This is not typically associated with this DM-player relationship in Dungeons & Dragons. But if the DM is willing to give up some of that control, it can be another avenue to get players to contribute and feel more comfortable about playing more outside of what is considered the typical rule set. Um, and also, like, that typical DM-player relationship in a lot of ways. And then, of course, there's the game level, which is, like, you're interacting with the mechanics of the game. That's the D20 role, the resource management part of the game, and the things that the characters can just do. So those are... There are some other levels, but those are the ones that are, in my opinion, opinion the most important so if you think about playing in those different levels then you can then you can do some different things like if if as a dungeon master you're willing to give up some control of the story and ask those questions that are more world building or even just about the character like for instance sean your question about what's your mother's name that's actually a world building question like Mm -hmm. that character didn't necessarily exist in the dm's purview before and now it does so you just asked a player to create something Related to the character, but not necessarily just the character doing something in the world, right? Like, that is a world-building thing. It's a story-based thing. It is not just a character thing. Um, and this is this is where I'm getting at with the whole... Um, con- contributing from a, a narrative point of view. Like, when you ask, what does that look like? Like, uh, the attack roll in D&D. I mean... I go up and I attack it, and I roll a d20. A lot of times I like to say, what does that look like? Tell me the story of what's happening. Like, what is, how does your character fight? Like, what is the style that they use? Because that will create a picture in everybody's head. It's also role-playing, because it is advocating and describing and creating for that particular character. I, I don't think role-playing is just necessarily so narrow that it has to be about the, uh, the first-person point of view acting things out. Mm-hmm. Um, I love asking wizards, what do your spells look like? How do you cast your spells? Like, m- how do you move about? Like you were talking about sneaking across the, sneaking across or something like that is a, a perfect moment for like, tell me that story. Like, what does that look like? Especially like scaling a wall. Cause one, one thief could be like, I take out my rope, and my grappling hook, throw it up there and climb up the wall. Another one could be like, I'm gonna, um, I'm going to parkour from the corner of the wall up the wall, grab onto the side of the the windowsill, pull myself up, and jump to the top of the wall. Like, those are two very different ways to do a thing. Mm-hmm. So um, that's that's where I'm at. Like, I think all of you folks out there who are listening to this, that is another avenue for role-playing and not necessarily having to do the acting thing. I think descriptive narrative is just as important to role-play as... Um, as the the talking points uh, we're talking from first person point of view Um, I love to talk from first person point of view I love to do the character acting thing listen to the Streets of Avalon or the Avanti stuff you'll hear me playing those characters but I also love descriptive narrative like I love action and D&D is a pretty big action game so if you can get that especially in your combats you can fill in the narrative part and now I'm done talking because I just talked for a very long time I think a lot of players are not particularly used to doing narration for what their character does. And it's something I'm interested in finding ways to encourage, you know, in the movie of your character in this adventure, what did what you just say accomplish look like? And I'm still trying to figure out the best questions, the best way to encourage um, players to contribute to that narration. So, so maybe in a future down with D&D, that, that would be a subject. Yeah, the, it's not too different from the um, the how would your character say that. Like, usually after an attack roll, say somebody crits, just turn around and say, what does that look like when you crit? It's almost the same thing. Right. I'll often see the DM, if on a crit or on a killing shot, 
describe it. Just let the let the player do it. Basically, um, another good one that I love to do is like the first time somebody casts a spell, especially magic missile, because magic missile is so kind of boring if you think about it. Like it's a bunch of force bolts, right? I'm like, what do your magic missiles look like? Another one of my favorite questions to ask warlocks is, what does your eldritch blast look like? Because it doesn't necessarily have to look like anything. It can be anything. So, I mean, I've had black bolts of void energy. I've had blue, misty, surrounded sparkle bolts because of the fey. Like, I mean, it's really fascinating to hear what magic looks like from different people's point of view. I am so making a spell now called Sparkle Bolts. <laughs> sparkle Bolts? <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, I played a character that his uh, his whole shtick was that he put... Um, he he was a prismatic mage, but like he didn't have any prismatic spells. He just used um, uh, sp- uh, what is it? Fairy glitter. He used glitter in all of his spells as a spell component to give them a sparkle. Nice. Like how terrible is that, right? Like people hated this, the, the the glitter. It gets everywhere, right? But right. you know, that's just like it didn't do anything to the mechanics, but it added a level of of character to the char- to the character and the way that they acted. Right, and then something for the other players to to uh, act against. Not not against in terms of not liking it, but just reacting to. Correct. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, do you have anything else to add, add DM David? I mean, I went on a rant there because I had a, I have a lot of I had a lot of things to say about that because of how I feel about um the whole concept of role playing. Yeah, you've thought about that a lot, and uh, <laughs> I, I don't really have anything, anything more to more to, to add on. Yeah, because I love everything that you said too. I think that is that is half of the the equation. I think the stuff that I um that I threw out is the other half of the equation. If you can get players to get engage with either side of those things or both of those things, then you have a much more um, narrative story based style of game. And it's not even like you're changing the mechanics; you're just encouraging a different kind of uh, play style because you're encouraging a different kind of narration for the for the roles instead of just engaging with the mechanics. You're actually asking for story. Right, and it gives folk. Uh players on a way to reveal their characters in situations they wouldn't normally have that opportunity. Yeah. And also in the middle of a thing that often people think there's a disconnect, which is combat. Like people get that mini, those minis in that map out and they think, think that there's like, has to be this disconnect. And I know that doesn't have to be true. And a bunch of other people out there know that doesn't have to be true, but there's a good chunk of people out there that think that that's just kind of the way that the game is played. Although I think with streaming and everything, it's starting to change, right? Like, this uh and and even if you put minis on the board that doesn't have to change like i loved moving my mini across the board saying i stomp across with my goliath like i stomp across the the ground because i'm i was like an earth-based whatever and like with uh with slight tremors and wield my giant greatsword and slamming it down upon the orc's head uh that's how i would describe my moving and attacking in fourth edition like it didn't matter what version of dnd i was playing there was just narrative mm-hmm all right, that's uh that that's the thing right there, I guess. Um, I, I guess I, I have two quick two quick things. Role playing isn't just about interactions and speaking; it's about presenting and portraying the characters, regardless of point of view. And it's if you want to, as a dungeon master, like a, a good quick tip for getting people to play or thinking character is don't address the players, address their characters, address them as characters. That really goes a long way, strangely enough, to getting people to play in character. Absolutely. The first thing I tell my players at my table is I'm going to be calling on you by your character name, not by your name. Yeah, huh? me too. It's the first thing I do all the time, too, especially when I'm out in convention play. I, I almost always make sure everybody has table tents with their names on them so I can just call them by their character names. And I'm like, mm-hmm. I will not remember your name. I'll probably remember your character name, though. Mm-hmm. Uh, is that it? Are we good? Anything else? Well, one other thing that I wanted to mention, and uh, I think that's an important technique, is I like, you know, in, in a typical session i think that you tend to end up with role playing between the dm and one or two players who happen to have a little bit more forceful personalities and the rest of the table doesn't get the spotlight time that they would get in another kind of scene everybody gets a turn and in, in, in a fight but in a role playing scene you don't necessarily see that so I always look for ways to try and um, single out characters, especially the ones that are not getting a lot of attention for interaction. And sometimes uh, that means that my NPCs happen to find some sort of kinship with one of the characters in the group. You know, they want to talk to the dwarf and they're not particularly interested in anybody else. Or they've heard the legends of the barbarian and they want to 
talk to this person that they admire, you know, so they, they single out somebody in the group and hopefully it's somebody who maybe doesn't get as much spotlight time. Um, another thing that I like to do in interaction scenes is do violate the, uh, cardinal rule of D and D and find reasons to split the party. It's, it's not a great, great technique in a dungeon, but if you're at a, at a, a masquerade ball, if you can find ways that each of the people in the party have to speak to a different, say, minister, then you can engage everybody in the party in their own little challenge and give each one a chance to uh, take the center of the, the, the scene or in the encounter or whatever it is. One of the most beneficial skills you can learn as a dungeon master or a game master is how to cut between players in a timely fashion while still keeping everybody involved and keeping the pace good. Like, table control's a thing. Like, you're not wrong, uh, David, at all. Like, everything you said is, is amazingly good advice. In fact, it's such good advice that uh, Misdirected Mark, the Misdirected Mark podcast, has done two separate episodes on two of those different topics. Like, and we talked about each of them for, like, an hour. So, I mean, like... That is a lot. There's a lot there to go into and to learn about. I mean, it doesn't sound like anybody who's out there listening, it doesn't sound like there's a lot there, but there's tons and tons to those two kind of ideas that, that DM David threw out there. And they're, they're worth studying if you're trying to get better at the craft of dungeon mastering. Absolutely. Just, yeah, one other thing that helps if you have a table where you have one or two players whose personalities are taking up all the attention um, is to when when they're doing something when they're talking, turn to one of the players who isn't speaking so much, and say something like, "Show me what your character's facial expression is like as he's doing this," or "What is your character thinking?" Yeah, there right you go. now as he is doing this. That just you know it's a it's a way to let the the alpha players do their thing, but get input from everyone else around the table. And hey, if you're an alpha player out there, if you're one of those players, you should really be trying to interact with the other people at the table. Like, mm -hmm. don't just make it about you and the dungeon master. Make it about you and the other players, too. Make those conversations happen. Yep. And dungeon masters, when you see those things happen, let them happen. Yep. And, they, and every table needs those alpha players. Don't get us wrong. We're not, I'm not mocking them because they are sometimes the only thing that keeps a table going. Uh, when when you get a lot of people who don't want to talk and you as the DM have to you know end up being the MC rather than the DM, um, <laughs> having those alpha players is great. So I'm not trying to mock them. I'm just trying to say here's a way to use those alpha players if they are only interacting with you as the DM to bring other people into the conversation. Also, alpha players, you can be a bad alpha player and be selfish, or you can be a good alpha player and like include everybody. Like That's a thing. Like, mm hmm the, the the term alpha isn't bad. It's the how you how you use that power is is uh, the thing you should be thinking about. Like, don't be don't be evil. Be good. Use your power for good. <laughs> great great points. I I think a a good player can serve just as well as the DM to try and draw everybody in the party into the spotlight from time to time. And speaking. Speaking for myself, Sean, I'm I'm glad to hear that I am not the only DM who has occasionally had a table of folks who seem to be sort of passive and felt like, yeah, I got to be the MC and kind of drag everybody through this party, uh, yeah. through this, this group, this adventure. Uh, happens to all of us. <laughs> yeah, when you run convention games and you're running, you know, seven slots at, at a convention like Gen Con or Origins, um, you're going to run into those tables. And at those points, you just hope you're only running a one-hour adventure and not a four-hour adventure because, man, those four-hour adventures where you are, you know, you're doing the song and dance for everyone is, is a long Or, you know, time. you use a bunch of the techniques that we just talked about and get them to come out of their shells. There you go, Chris. Way to bring it around. <laughs> um, DM David, do you have any last words before we move on to the closing? No, this, uh, this covers all the bases. 
Yeah, that covers all the very basic bases. We could do like seven shows based on the stuff we just talked about. <laughs> but uh, with that, I will say thank you, everyone out there, so much for listening. I'm going to do a few Patreon shout-outs now. Um, Zach Goins, Christopher Gray, Robert Dorgan. I love uh, Robert Dorgan. He's one of our oldest. I think he might be our oldest patron. Him or, him or the old-school DM who's also on this list right now. Uh, Miko Froelich, Andrew uh, Dacey, Tabletop Gaming Deals, Wayne Peterson, Effie Matson, the uh, Suicide Pixie, and uh, Kevin Minorzak. Thank you so much for being our patron. And speaking of patrons, if you'd like to be a patron of Download D&D, you can click on the link to our Patreon page on the website, and for $2 a month, you can get yourself a shout-out. Or for $4 a month, you not only get a shout-out, but you also get to see our pre-production show notes, which David has told us are quite nice. Yes, and also you get invited to our Slack room where you can talk at me or Sean directly if you feel like it, and we are um, often seeing that, so you know we, we are more prone to respond. Also, if you can't help us monetarily, but you want to give us a boost, you can do so with an Apple Podcast review. Those reviews help us even if you're not listening via Apple Podcast, because many other podcatchers use that as their way to rate and rank shows, and that would help make us more visible, as would sharing our information on your social media streams. Mm-hmm. So, uh, DM David, where can we find you on the Internet? Well, you can find me at uh, my blog site, dmdavid.com. I also reasonably active on twitter at dm david blog cool awesome go there check out dm david it'll be amazing he's got excellent advice all the time sean where can we find you on the internet uh you can always find me at on twitter at sean merwin or on the download dnd g plus community how about you chris uh you can hit me up at misdirected mark on twitter or on the website where you can catch other great shows such as this one uh, she's a super geek. She's a super geek is an actual play RPG podcast highlighting women as GMs. Join them every other Tuesday for lots of different RPGs and guests. And we do so love sending Emily around these parts, uh, sending my cohort in running this whole shebang. Yes, that is an excellent podcast that you should check out. And Down With D&D is a misdirected Mark production, the media arm of Encoded Designs. Oh, so now what are we going to do, David? We're going to learn to talk like a kobold. Get down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. Get down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. Get down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. Who's down with D&D? Get down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. You're down with D&D. I'm down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. Who's down with D&D? Yeah, you know me.